Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have sent to help us to communicate your word and also to receive it and to apply it to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you will guide me in the words I say and that you will apply the words as you would to each one who is hearing. Amen. This morning I've chosen to speak about another king. You'd think I like history, actually. I tried to avoid history as much as possible. I sometimes had trouble as to who we were fighting in the Second World War, was the Russians or the Germans or whatever. But I memorized things and did enough to pass the exams. This is not some obscure king like the Hezekiah who had, uh, at least was mentioned in scripture. If I give you one sentence about him, you would all know who I'm talking about. He was the wisest king that ever ruled in Israel. Now you know that it's Solomon that I'd like to speak about. Because he was such a wise king, we have records of his life in the writings of the books, in the Kings, in the Book of Chronicles, in the Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. So we can just touch on parts of his life and hopefully come up with at least one lesson that he would like to teach us. Uh, first, I'd also like to say a bit about the translation that I'll be reading this morning. Uh, the translation I'm using is the New Living Translation. There are so many translations of the Bible, but I like this one particularly because it has, written, has been written generally on the junior high level. And uh, I really like about it that it has the weights and measures uh, translated into everyday language like we use. Like if somebody says you have a talent of gold, you really don't know is that as much as a fingering or is that uh, uh, something you could barely carry or whatever. Weights and, uh, well, measures especially, uh, uh, cubit generally was considered about 18 inches, you know, from your uh, wrist or from your hand to your elbow. Uh, I can just see somebody building kitchen cupboards that way, but anyhow. Uh, <laughs> So this, this translation has put them into everyday language that we use. So where I'll be reading about uh, Solomon, uh, they will have translated them. So let's read about Solomon uh, as the Bible tells us about him. Starting in 1 Kings chapter 3 in this translation, it says, The young king went to Gibeon and sacrificed a thousand offerings. And that night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, what do you want? And I will give it to you. Can you just imagine? What do you want? I will give it to you. And here young Solomon replied, O Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father David. But I'm like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? And then we go on to read that the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. And God replied, because you've asked for wisdom, in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. I will 
give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has ever had or will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me and obey my decrees and my commandments as your father David did, I will give you long life. So this young king was off to a good start. The wisdom God gave him went much beyond knowing about things, but also in guiding him in all the decisions that he made. Well, I'd better qualify that in saying in most of the decisions that he made. Danny has often mentioned to us that when God gives, God gives generously, lavishly. And here we have another example about how God answered this prayer, as we'll see as we follow through his life. One thing we notice about Solomon right off from the start is that he put his whole heart into everything he did. He was the son of the king who was after God's own heart. And when David, his father, had done anything, he put his whole self into it. When David went to fight Goliath, he simply went to a lake. He was facing a giant. He simply went to a stream and picked up five few stones and put one of them into his sling and took on a giant. He had his complete trust in the Lord. That was, that was his personality. And when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem, he danced so hard before the Lord that he practically lost his clothes. He put his whole heart into it. So that was his dad. Now here's the son, just like him. When he wanted to build a temple, when David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, he collected massive amounts of materials ready for the construction. And Solomon inherited this trait from his father. And actually, God likes this. In Colossians 3.23, we are told, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. Notice how Solomon goes about starting to build the temple. He began by gathering people to do the work. Solomon decided to build the temple to honor the name of the Lord and also a royal palace for himself. He enlisted a force of 70,000 laborers, 80,000 men to quarry stone in the hill country, and 3,600 foremen. Building the house of the Lord was no group decision for some well-meaning volunteers who were coming to build a church. No, this was a request for materials and workmanship that he made to Hiram that he wanted to build an elaborate house for God. This was to be a magnificent temple because our God is greater than all other gods, he says, but who can really build him a worthy home? Not even the highest heavens can contain him. So he says, who am I to consider building a temple for him? except as a place to burn sacrifices to him. So he says to King Hiram, uh, the king of Tyre, send me a master craftsman. This temple was to be something elaborate, outstanding among the nations. They had their shrines and places of worship, 
And this was to be something that would show that this was a place to worship the God of all gods above anything that any of the nations around them would have. Father David had gone as far as uh, preparing for this temple construction. He had already chosen some craftsmen and uh, uh, much of the materials had been gathered. So now young Solomon steps and imports an outstanding master craftsman to be above his foreman and be above his workers. Uh, King Haram responds to the request for this outstanding craftsman and he says, I am sending you a master craftsman who is extremely talented. He's skilled in making things from gold, silver, bronze, and iron. He also works with stone and wood. He can work with purple, blue, and scarlet cloth and fine linen. He also is an engraver and can follow any design given to him. He will work with your craftsmen and those appointed by my lord, your father, David. And now the construction of this magnificent temple takes place. Uh, when it was completed, we have a description of this uh, construction. This temple was not that large and massive. Uh, the inside of the ceiling was about 180 feet and it was about 90 feet wide, about three times the size of our church. That was the size of the completed temple. And we're told now that he paneled the main room of the temple with cypress wood and overlaid it with fine gold and decorated it with carvings of palm trees and chains. He decorated the walls of the temple with beautiful jewels and with gold. He overlaid the beams, the threshold, the walls, the doors throughout the temple with gold and he carved figures of cherubim on the walls. He overlaid the interior with 23 tons of gold. Uh, let's put that into a dollar value for today. No, let's not go there. <laughs> the gold nails that were used were 20 ounces each. He also overlaid the walls of the upper rooms with gold. Can you just imagine gold and jewels and this master craftsman was, was being used to put it all together. And now when the temple is complete, the dedication takes place. Just look at the devotion of Solomon to God as he prays the prayer of dedication. He prays in part, but will God really live on earth among people? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Nevertheless, he says, Listen to my prayer and my plea, O Lord, my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is making to you. May you watch over this temple day and night, this place where you have said you would put your name. May you always hear the prayers I make towards this place. May you hear the humble and earnest requests from me and your people, Israel, when they pray towards this place. Yes, hear us from heaven where you live and when you hear, forgive. Solomon had a bit of a grasp of what God was like. His father David, as we heard in the scripture reading this morning in Psalm, in Psalm 8, was sitting in the fields obviously and thinking about God. 
And he says, when I consider the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which saw us today, the works of your fingers. Can you imagine what we know about the earth, the universe around us is the closest uh, star is the sun, and I believe it is 11 minutes that it takes the light to travel from the sun to us at 186,000 miles a second. And David says, I see the heavens and works of your fingers. So Solomon had some idea of how great and wonderful God is. We need to have that understanding. And when Solomon finished that temple, it was absolutely awesome. Just look at another outstanding event in the life of Solomon. The Bible tells us that the Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon, and she came to challenge him with difficult questions. She arrived in Jerusalem with a great display of pomp, bringing with her camels, carrying spices, a very large quantity of gold and precious gems. She visited Solomon and discussed with him everything that was on her mind. I suspect she came up there to impress him with what she had in her kingdom. But let's go on. Solomon answered all her questions. There was no question too complex for the king. And when the Queen of Sheba saw for herself Solomon's extensive wisdom, the palace he had built, the food on his banquet hall, his servants and attendants, their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings which he presented in the Lord's temple. She was amazed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your wise sayings and your insight, and your insight was truly, uh, was true, sorry. I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, I didn't hear the half of the story. Your wisdom and wealth surpasses what was reported to me. Your attendants who stand before you at all times and hear your wise sayings are truly happy. May the Lord your God be praised because he favored you by placing you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he made you king so you could make the right decisions. It's obvious Solomon had given her the royal treatment. And uh, she had seen his entire kingdom and how it worked. And he also, in this process, gave God credit for everything that he had. And so she also gave God great credit for all these achievements. Solomon reigned for 40 years, and during this time, we could just summarize it by saying life happened. The country was in peace, and a lot of things happened, and Solomon uh, used his uh, position as a king to do many things, which we'll talk about. In his later years, he reviews his achievements. His personality was what today we would call an overachiever surpassing all before him. As he thinks about it, he speaks of what all this really means to him. Would you believe? Not much. I assume that as he's coming to the end of his reign and I see him sitting in some comfort and rethinking his entire life as a king and the privilege that he had 
which were not available to every, every citizen, and he reviews his life, and we see his review in the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, he would say, the things I accomplished did give me some pleasure, but really when all is said and done, they were not real lasting achievements. Achieving his goals didn't give him fulfillment, for it only made him realize how hollow and limited anything he could accomplish under the sun. In sum, he says again, I perceive that this also is but a chasing after the wind. <laughs> Have you ever tried stopping the wind, putting your hands up? That's so futile, we don't even try. And that's what he compares to his accomplishments. And after thinking about achievements, he thinks about pleasure. He says, I found some value in seeking pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. In this way, I, uh, reward, I got this reward for my toil. He had said of, to himself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He acquired houses, and actually cities, wealth, gardens, wine, servants or slaves, jewelry, entertainment, and ready access to sexual pleasure. Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Let's just stop and look at this statement of his which uh, he can, when he considers these factors. Considering wealth, we read, each year Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. This did not include the additional revenue he received from merchants and traders, from all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land. Whenever he received royalty, they brought him gifts. He had a fleet, of, a fleet of trading ships of Tarsus that sailed with Hiram's fleet, and every three years the ships returned loaded with gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Year after year, everyone who visited him brought him gifts, silver, gold, clothing, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. There was so much silver around that it was considered worthless. So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on the earth. What about the accumulation of wealth as the higher purpose behind work? Wealth brings the problem of inheritance. When you die, the wealth you accumulate will pass to someone else who may be completely undeserving. Sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave it all to be enjoyed by another who didn't work for it. This is so galling to Solomon, he says, I turned and gave my heart up to despair. Then he comments, so I saw that there is nothing better than that one should enjoy their work, for that is their lot. Work is under the curse in the Garden of Eden, but not really. Adam and Eve were given the task to tend the garden. That was their work. But the curse of work was after they, were, after they left the garden, 
was the fact that they would have to, weeds and briars would grow, and you know what that's like. You clean your garden and it's clean for the rest of the year, right? <laughs> that's the curse of work. And as farmers, you seed your crops and you spray it once and that, that's the end of it, right? We all know that. Now I see Solomon sitting in his comfortable throne and he just continues to think about life. He reviews his achievements since he did everything wholeheartedly. He didn't sit back and say, man, I would have, wish I would have put a little more effort into that. No, he did everything wholeheartedly. All the things that we talked about, his houses, his wealth, his, his uh, properties that he looked after, and his servants, etc. All those buildings will someday be gone. Will you believe that 400 years after it was built, that beautiful temple was burnt down and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, when he conquered Jerusalem? Solomon never thought anything of these buildings that they would be eternal. So he concludes, really, it's vanity. Since in the end, they'll all be gone. Solomon would say to us, I've tried everything that is important in life. And I've given myself up to f that it is folly in everything I did. And to be truthfully honest, it's worth nothing. What a depressive conclusion to life. He was living the best life anybody could wish for. And he sounds very depressed and far from God. What a shame to come to such a conclusion at the end of such a life. His supposed achievements had turned out to be nothing fulfilling. And today as we work, we might do well to take time to smell the roses, as the saying goes, and enjoy what you're doing. Even pursuing wisdom had led him to the brink of despair. He concludes, all is vanity and chasing after the wind. Nonetheless, toiling merely in order to gain pleasure is ultimately unsatisfying. And again he concludes, all this was vanity and chasing after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This wouldn't be a very good time to stop, would it? The big problem, the big problem is that he concludes everything under the sun. All those wives had taken him away from God. In the end, he, re he raised his eyes beyond the sun. And now, after reviewing his entire life, he realized there's nothing of eternal value in this life under the sun. If you want to have anything of value in this life, invest your time, your talents, your abilities and treasures in things that are eternal, in things that are beyond the sun. God will judge our hearts and anything we do for ourselves will someday be burned away and only what we do for God will be eternal. Take enjoyment in what you do. Live a joyful life. Do good and enjoy what you do. That's good. And take it from someone, Solomon, who said, because I was king, I had the ability to try it all to the full. And really, there is nothing permanent in any of our activities here under the sun. Look further in everything you do. Look beyond the sun. He says, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God, or in today's language, love the Lord. Obey his commandments, for this is everyone's duty. 
God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. So his conclusion, fear God and obey his commands. That's it, above all his other accomplishments. This is so contrary to our world today. It seems so wrong to just waste your time and talents by doing what you enjoy or have decided is important when you could be making so much more money by doing something else. Our world tells us to enjoy ourselves by buying more, get better things, get the best playing, paying job, the biggest house, the nicest garden, the largest herd of cattle or flocks, the best car. In fact, economics teaches us that there is no limit to human wants. So we're bombarded with advertisements that remind us of the things that we still don't have. If you ask Solomon, he'd say, I've done it all, and in the end, it doesn't really satisfy. J.B. Phillips translates a verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice the plan of God for, your, for you is good. It meets all the demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. So don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. As followers of Jesus Christ, we follow a different drummer, and we have to think of what really counts in the end. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must not let the world squeeze us into a way of thinking that does not really satisfy. The poet William Wordsworth said, The world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. And the Apostle Paul would add, Godliness with contentment is great gain. May God help us to choose wisely when we make choices and we learn to look beyond the sun if we want to find satisfying, eternal, lasting value in the choices that we make. <laughs>